Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is William Hill. I am the host, as usual, and those of you who listen faithfully each week know that I am the host of this program. I received an interesting email the other day from a longtime listener who said I should not feel ashamed or embarrassed, as it were, to make that comment about my name. I kind of understand where he's coming from, but the reality is simple. Those of you who listen all the time know who I am. Those of you who listened to me years ago know who I am. So, But if you don't, again, my name is William Hill. I do host this program of Greenville Seminary each week. It is um, my pleasure to do this. I enjoy talking with various people about various books, topics, authors, uh, different subjects that come up. And so I do enjoy doing it. Now, today I am recording from my home command center, as it were. Those who are on Facebook and follow me there know what I mean by that. But uh, typically I'm in my office at the seminary, but today I decided to do this from home. And so hopefully everything will work out as it should, but we'll have to see. But we do have an interesting discussion lined up today, one in an area that I think is somewhat unmined. Uh, as I was talking with the author off-air before we started this program today, I was talking with her about the reality of certain areas uh, that hasn't really been discussed or talked about books you don't find written subjects very often. So we're going to be talking with Amy Bird about her book, Housewife Theologian, and we'll be talking with her in just a minute. This is Broadcast 54. Today is December 12th, 2013. If you've been living under a rock and you don't know anything about Greenville Seminary, you can simply find out more information at our website at gpts.edu. And of course, this program has its own website, confessingourhope.com. There you'll get all the information about broadcasts that we've done, including show notes, different resources and links to different different, uh, types of materials that are related to the topic that we've discussed past broadcast and what is coming up on the program. As you've heard me say a hundred times, I almost never know what's coming up on the program. So go to the website and you'll find out all that information there. And of course, don't forget about the mobile app that we have for the seminary. It doesn't just include the podcast. It has chapel sermons, theological lectures, our spring theology conference, which by the way, is coming up in March of 2014. And it's something that you really want to If you can, attend. Registration is now open, and so avail yourself of that opportunity. The information for that is also on the Greenville Seminary website at gpts.edu. The mobile app is available for Android, iOS. Sorry, BlackBerry users. Sorry, Windows users. Can't help you there. But Android, iOS, if you have one, get it. It is free, and we've had a lot of great response to it to date. So... Take advantage of those uh, resources and use them uh, as much as you like. I, I love the apps. Everybody knows this. I am a tech nut. And so when I'm stuck somewhere or I'm who knows what's going on, I can fire up these things and I can study scripture memory. I can listen to podcasts. I can do all kinds of things right from my phone. It's really nice. What a great time to be alive, as it were. But uh, anyway. That's another subject for another day. As I indicated, we'll be talking with Amy Bird today about her book, Housewife Theologian. And it is an interesting book. It is one that is subtitled, How the Gospel Interrupts the Ordinary. Now, I haven't asked her about this, and maybe I'll get to it in the discussion, but I often wonder, just how ordinary is it to be a housewife? You know, you used to think when I was young and stupid, um, 
but my wife gets to stay home all day and I got to go work and slave and have some bosses yelling at me. It must be nice to stay home all day. That was when I was young and stupid. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll find out today. It's not just that easy. But anyway, so Amy, it's great to have you on the program and um, it was great talking with you off air, but hopefully some of that will spill into our discussion today um, here on the podcast. Thanks, Bill. It's an honor to talk to you. Great. Now you're, uh, you live in West Virginia, as the book says, and I do. You, have, you have how many children? I have three children. Um, currently, they are 14, 11, and 8. So I got to know, with that age span and knowing I've, I've been through, I've had, had three children myself, and I went through those years with them, mm-hmm. and knowing all the attention that was needed and the time that was invested, how did you find the time to sit down and write? And it's not a pamphlet book either. It's 240 pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> find the time to do that. Well, actually, it took a pretty long time. I didn't even, um, I didn't even know that I wanted to be an author. And I taught some Bible studies and did a little bit of like, you know, local speaking at women's groups and um, just all the reading I was doing and and women I w- was talking with. This book came in my head. This need for this book came in my head. And um, when I started it, my daughters were in school, but my son was still too young to attend school. So um, it was a challenge to write the way I wanted to write and have, you know, be caring for, you know, I tried nap times or whatever, but um, right. my mom really it, supported the idea. So she would take him for me every now and then on Thursdays for like four hours. So I mean, just something as simple as that. It took me a long time. I actually even homeschooled him for pre-K and said, you know what, I'm just going to focus on that because I started finding him to be an interruption to what I really wanted to do, which is a horrible, simple thing. So um, I put it aside for a year even and waited for him to to be in kindergarten so I could joyfully be his uh, mom and preschool teacher and all those things. And then once the children were on school, I had more time to work on it. Well, let me just read for the listener's sake. Um, for those who do not have a copy, and by the way, um, now that I'm thinking about it, I probably should say it now because I'll probably forget <laughs> by the time this is over. Uh, I do have an extra copy of this book that was graciously sent to me by PNR, who is the publishing uh, house for this book, that um, is available for any listener who simply emails me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. The first listener who emails me after listening to this pro- this podcast will get the copy sent to them for nothing. So that's the way I typically do it. So the first person to send me an email, confessingourhope at gpts.edu, will get a copy of this book. Postpaid, no strings attached. You have to read it, though. That's the only (laughs) string attached. And if you don't read it, I'm going to tell the author that you didn't. And when I read the little (laughs) blurb in the back of the book, maybe it'll motivate you to read it. But this is what it says, and, and interestingly, the author, uh, Amy, has written this as well, so it gives you kind of a flavor of her writing style. Um, but here's what it says. Amy Bird is just an ordinary mom of three living in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Aside from that amazing gig, Amy has made a fool of herself in martial arts and uh, martial arts training. That's the part I was referring to. <laughs> Survived college, dabbled in ceramics, owned a coffee shop, braved leading the youth group with her husband, became a Bible study teacher and blogger, and done a little speaking on the side. Since her children's schedule, schedules have majorly cut into her social life, she has resorted to writing. <laughs> so it kind of gives you an idea what you're going to read. It's very warm and engaging book. Um, so mm-hmm. I would 
uh, very much commend this. Now, Amy, you mentioned this need, mm-hmm. and what's really caused you to to want to write this book in the first place. What was that need? Well, uh, my husband and I, when we married, we lived in Frederick, Maryland, and um, I was leading a Bible study there for several years before we moved here to Martinsburg, and. In that Bible study, it was like a group of young women. I actually had my coffee shop then, and I was approached by one of them asking if I would lead a Bible study for women in the off hours, you know, once a week. Well, I was so young and naive, and I just thought, okay, sure, I'll kind of facilitate this. And, you know, in the small group, we had a Presbyterian, a Baptist, a a Methodist, a non-denominational, and a Pentecostal. (laughs) (laughs) a woman, young woman. And so I thought, well, we all believe the same thing. We all read scripture and Mm -hmm. boy, did I, you know, realize how naive I was. And so we decided, or I decided that we would first learn about the doctrine of scripture and Mm. boy, we just really grew in the word together. And I had great relationships with these women after studying God's word with them. And actually my Bible study became a part of my church, small groups. And so it grew in that way, which was really nice to be under that accountability. And when we moved here to Martinsburg and I began making friends, um, this is a very socially Christian town. A lot of people go to church. And um, so I you know, met a lot of great women. But I found that our conversations, women understood the moral um, imperatives to Christianity, but not the indicatives behind them. So our, mm-hmm. our conversations would be kind of like, oh, can you believe what was on TV last night? Or I can't believe that that girl's wearing that to school today. You know, if I wanted to bring up something like, you know, the, the beauty of purity instead of just talking about, mm-hmm. you know, what somebody's wearing, uh, it was like the sound of crickets. <laughs> I was all by right. myself on the theological level of conversation. So I really saw a need for a tool for women to have to help them um, talk about theology and learn theology together and see how that really shapes our everyday life. Absolutely. So it's taking the theological and moving it into the practical realm and and establishing that bridge really between those two poles. Yes, exactly. Saying, you know, because the book, it's not a theological textbook. No. um, But it's designed, it seems to me at least, to... uh, move, establish the foundation for these different areas that you talk about in the book from a theological base and then move them into a more practical, here's how it works out in real life kind of ideology. Am I understanding it correctly? Yeah. I mean, so many women want to be good Christian women, whether they're married or not even. But um, we just look at that as moral imperatives. And so we go to church, we say our prayers, um, we even say grace before meals, and we try to um, be good people. But um, Mm. there's so much more to Christianity than that. And our joy is really found in learning about who God is, knowing God. And that shapes everything that we do. You start the introduction of the book, comes right out and, and, and makes the art, it makes the statement that this book is for women. Now, mm-hmm. Are you saying then that men shouldn't read it? Well, you know, when I originally wrote the book, I never thought a man would want to read it. <laughs> but I've been very encouraged by um, pastors and some professors and even just husbands sending me emails saying they're very thankful for it. And 
um, that they even learned something from it. And my project manager of the book actually over at PNR wrote a hilarious article about um, just what a man can get from re- from reading Housewife Theologian, which was comical, and uh, I was very much appreciated it. I think one of the, the benefits of, of especially husbands reading this, it may be that it, they w- can help their wives also um, in these areas because these are things that you're writing from a woman's perspective, and let's face it, us men are sometimes we're dense, and we just don't. <laughs> pay a whole lot of attention to what's going on with our wives and some of these matters. Um, you know, we like to think too highly of ourselves as we're the theological experts in the home, which oftentimes is a bunch of baloney. Um, <laughs> but it, it helps us gain perspective, I think, at some level as to some of these matters. Because as I indicated in the opening, you know, we leave the house and, and we run off to work every day and we don't always, we think things are just hunky-dory in the house and it's not always <laughs> the case. And, um, and so I think there's a huge benefit for a man to read this, at least to get some perspective on some of these matters that really have a women's angle because you wrote the book and you're a woman and a wife and a, and a mother. Thank and you. I'm so, I'm I so pleased some, to hear that because I have um, been hearing that from, from some men and I didn't even know that men would want to give my books a time of day. So it's very encouraging to me that so, they want to yeah. learn more about their wives in that way too. Yeah. I, I just think it just helps. It just helps. As many listening to this program know, I'm in seminary, so I'm in the, I'm dealing with theology all the time, as it were, um, mm-hmm. formally, informally, whatever the case may be, just casual conversations. And it's so easy for seminary students to sort of sideline their wives on these things, mm-hmm. as though theology is for us guys in seminary mm-hmm. or pastors, and theology isn't really for the ordinary wife, mother. Um, which really is the subtitle of the book, is how the gospel interrupts the ordinary. Now, it's interesting choice of words, it interrupts. How did, what's, what was the idea behind that, how it interrupts the ordinary? Well, um, it's kind of an idea that's woven throughout the book, and so there's lots of different areas where I'm kind of using this interruption. Um, one is our Sunday service, you know. Yeah. Six days a week, we're about doing things, and we get stuck in our default mode of thinking, especially women, that, you know, we're running the world. <laughs> um, you say you come home and th- everything's honky-dory. Well, that's because there's some woman there in the background who is keeping all the balls in the air. And, um, you know, on Sunday, we're interrupted by the gospel, and um, we realize this isn't our story. This is God's story that we've, this God's great drama that we've been cast into by his grace. And um, we realize that it isn't what we do. It isn't our accomplishments that are important, but what God has done for us in Christ. So um, that's the major interruption there. And that seriously saturates into everything that we do throughout the week. You know, we're, we're given that great benediction at the end. And um, at the end of the worship service, to now go out there and be salt and light. And then, you know, even what I was saying at the beginning of the interview about uh, trying to write this book with my son and and feeling interrupted, um, Mm. I have a whole chapter on idolatry, and it's called Girl Interrupted. (laughs) And I talk about how, you know, many times we get involved in good things really good things that, you know, may be for God, but um, they can become idols in our life. And um, in a term, I'll to use the book, 
written by Sheldon Vanalkin, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, God gives us that severe mercy sometimes of interrupting that, sometimes even taking it away from us because it's become an idol in our life. So, what are some of those? What are some of those idols that maybe for housewives they're more prone to, and and, and what you maybe deal with more directly in the book? Yeah, um, you know, even our marriage or being a mother can uh, very much become idols in our lives because we start defining ourselves and finding our meaning and our value and uh, what our husband thinks about us or maybe what our neighbor thinks about us of how good of a wife we are or what our church mm. members think about us. Um, and, you know, these are good things. I should want to be a good Christian wife, but that's not where my identity is. My identity is in Christ. And if I don't have that grounded and have that foundation and if I not looking to him for my meaning and my value, then all these other good things, they, yeah, they become idols and we begin sinning in order to keep this, uh, keep getting fed by what we think is giving us our meaning and our value. Mm, very interesting. Now, as you, as you know, of course, yeah, we live in a and culture even, that, you know, being a Bible study teacher or things like that. Yeah, that, that is, it's a very interesting chapter. Um, and, and and I can certainly see certainly housewives they don't they're not the only ones wrestling with idolatry. Um, men have their idols too. No. Trust me. Um, yeah. Well, I mm-hmm. mean, well, you've been married for what seventeen years? I think if I'm doing my math Going correctly. On. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're certainly aware of that. Um, I, I have mine. Um, we all have them. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think it's an interesting perspective to realize that we're not defined by this role we've been thrust into, but you, and you sort of set that stage though, really in chapter one, where you, you outline in a very theological, but practical way, um, the role of the woman, how, why God created women in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, um, can you elaborate a little bit on, I guess maybe why did you start there? Why it wasn't that a chapter like chapter 12 or (laughs) chapter five, why did you start at that place? Well, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't want to start there because I feel like um, starting, you know, I open up with a very complimentary position that I take for women. And I thought, well, I'm going to turn away probably a lot of readers in chapter one. And Mm -hmm. um, so that was a risk I had to take. But I felt like it was very important because um, I'm going to refer to these things throughout the book. So I needed to start with a good foundation of creation and um, God making man, God making woman. What is our role to begin with? Why are we here? Um, And I use Bruce Waltke's commentary in Genesis to talk about this word helper. Mm -hmm. And I thought that uh, he was very helpful there. He says, God creates the woman to help Adam. That is to honor his vocation, to share his enjoyment and to respect the prohibition. The word help suggests that man has governmental priority, but both sexes are mutually dependent on each other. And I break down that statement then in in my own way to, you know, what does it mean to honor your husband's vocation? And so we take that into the, the cultural mandate that God gave man and woman together and and uh, enjoying God forever, I talk about, and respecting the prohibition together, and, and why this is important. Because, you know, I was talking to an unbelieving neighbor, actually, when I started writing the book, mm, mm. and she was, I was telling her about it, and um, 
she was actually a writer, so it was really good to talk to her. And she was just saying how, you know, my grandmother's generation was raised kind of the June Cleaver. This, you know, you're, <laughs> you're supposed to stay at home, never work outside of your home, and you know, wear your dress and heels while you're vacuuming with a smile on your face. And um, you know, they raised daughters to say, no, no, you can go and have a career and and put you know put everything into your career. You can have it all. And then now there's our generation that's kind of like, well, you know, that didn't work out too well for either of those generations. No. Where are we now? Like, um, how is it that we are to live in this culture now to be honoring to the gospel, to contribute to our home in a way that we know that we're supposed to as helpers, but also to co- contribute to our community and not be cut off from our community? And I think these are questions that every woman wrestles with, no matter if she has a job outside of the home as well, or if she is a stay-at-home mom, um, I believe that we all have the same issues that we're wrestling with. So I use that term housewife very loosely to mean a man's partner in marriage, the woman of the home. So it's for working women and stay-at-home moms. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna go there, and I'm glad you did because. As you indicated, you, you, the opening chapter could be taken um, almost as an affront to any woman who does work outside the home. So this book really doesn't apply to me. I have other issues that are unrelated to what you're going to say. So the book goes on the shelf, and that's the end of the reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really isn't that way. And um, and, I, and I'm dealing with this opening chapter, because I think because of that reason, and those who listen to this program don't get that impression. When you read the book, don't don't come away from that opening chapter thinking that that's what's, that's the end result because that's not what happens. And so uh, you just heard it from the author's mouth that that's, that the housewife is a loose term, mm-hmm. um, not strictly based in the reality that yes, there are some stay at home moms that because of their discussions with their husbands and their agreement together, and really that's the way it should be, um, that that's what's going to happen. Fine. Now everybody knows my wife doesn't, she's not a stay at home mom. Our kids are grown. They're adults. She works outside the home, Mm -hmm. but she can value from this book because of the issues it deals with, because they're applicable, because they're grounded theologically in whatever circumstance she may find herself. Well, and I even, in the introduction, I have, um, encouraged women to bring along because I did write the book. I designed it so that you can use it for a small group in your church. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, I encourage women to bring their high school daughters along. And, and I'm doing that in one of the groups that I'm leading. Um, we have three different high school girls in that group with us. And, you know, I also have um, a widowed woman in one of my groups and some singles. And I just think this will really encourage good mentoring, you know, this Titus II mentoring that women long for. Um, you know, if you have a tool to help you discuss these things, it can happen more naturally. Absolutely, and it, you're right. It it does lend the book does lend itself to that kind of of a group study type of environment um, as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to hasten out of chapter one too quickly, but unfortunately, we don't have. I can't talk all day about it, although I, <laughs> I could talk all day about it. Um, but in chapter two, you deal with an uh, an issue that I think our culture has has completely warped beyond recognition. Um, mm-hmm. This idea of beauty and um, you know, you've, I, I'm not sure if you use the expression, I can't remember, um, off the top of my head, whether you say, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. We all have all said that. Um, 
but you're not really speaking necessarily about outward beauty in this chapter. How how are you? What are you trying to communicate? With, I mean, I don't care about beauty. I'm a man. I, I comb my hair. I get dressed. <laughs> I leave the house. I don't want to look like a slob. But, I'm, but beauty is not really something that's really foremost in my thinking process. But I watch my wife sometimes get ready to go and leave the house and do things. And you know, there's this careful, meticulous approach to every little thing. Mm-hmm. What are you driving at in this chapter? Well, you know, I actually I am talking about inward beauty and outward beauty. Um, yes. Beauty very is good. very important. And I think that in our culture today, it's been so exploited and it's been mm. so um, packaged and tried, you know, tried to be sold to us um, and kind of market to our basest desires that now we think of it as a bad thing in some ways or something that we're not supposed to seek. And God cares very much about beauty. Um, he makes beautiful things as the, the song goes. And um, I opened the chapter talking about a trip that my husband and I took to Niagara Falls and how I noticed this uncomfortable tension between the beauty and its exploitation with all of the, um, the little shops and the, the casinos and all these things everywhere. And the, fancy, the fancy lights da- dancing off the falls. Yeah, the direct exactly. And, all that. Yeah. and so um, first I define beauty um, you know, straight from the free dictionary.com. And, uh, it's the quality that gives pleasure to the mind or senses and is associated with such properties as harmony of form and color, excellence of mm-hmm. artistry, truthfulness, and originality. So I kind of break that down. And then I, um, I look to scripture because the word beautiful is used many times in scripture. And so we get to the definitions of that. And I, I come to define beauty as it's not something that we acquire over others, which I think is something that women start becoming competitive about. We compare ourselves with one another and we try, in trying to be beautiful. Um, but it's something that we share with others in an appropriate way. And so um, I really get to the nitty gritty of that in, in the chapter on beauty. Now, in this chapter, you bring up the S word. Yes. <laughs> in fact, you know, that's not original with me. Um, that's exactly how it is titled in this section. <laughs> is the S word beautiful? Well, mm-hmm. Okay, so what is the S word? I mean, I know, of course, what <laughs> The it is, S word but... is uh, submission. And I'm actually talking about the story of Abigail and her husband Nabal and, and King David and that whole situation in Scripture. And um, she's described as beautiful. And I use this story to show that here is Abigail, who could have easily been a victim and um, easily, you know, woe is me. And here she um, does not actually submit to her husband's um, answer to that whole situation was to not give David and his men the wine and food that they so desperately needed. But when she hears about this, she actually takes a risk because she's submitting to the Lord above all. And a woman like that, you can be sure, most of the time is submissive in her disposition toward her husband as well. But um, she gives him what he needs. She gives David everything she needs. She does the hard work of gathering the supplies, risking her own life, taking the fall, and uh, giving it to him. And I take that to uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4, 
where um, Heath does say, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be hidden in the person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And I think she's a really good picture of that. And um, mm. he equates incorruptible beauty, don't we all want that, <laughs> with the disposition of submissiveness. So yeah, I was kind of tough. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were answering, and, and it, you know, I was back uh, perusing through the section, and, and it kind of struck me, and it, is it possible then for a woman to be truly beautiful, inwardly and outwardly, I guess, um, and not be submissive in her God call, in her God, uh, that, that, that calling that God has for her in that role that she accomplishes? That is a very great question, a good way of putting it. And um, I think that goes back to the free dictionary definition, mm -hmm. um, this truthfulness and originality that's associated with beauty. Um, we're not being true to the way God has created us if, if we do not have that disposition of submissiveness, if we are not in that helper role. And so we do see people who we may meet at first who outwardly appear to be beautiful, and then we get to know them. And this rebelliousness within them actually changes the way they look to us. I mean, we've all, I think, known people like that who become uglier oh, yeah. as we get to know them, which is a real shame because um, we're told yeah, by our culture that beauty is some kind of obnoxious appeal for attention. But that yeah, is I, I, beautiful. Yeah, I think you're right. I, you know, I mentioned upfront about the cultural idea of beauty I and mean, it's paraded all over our television screens and movies, Netflix, Amazon prime, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. medium you use to watch this stuff, um, that this is what beauty is. Um, maybe on the outside, but I'm thinking of a group of people in the new Testament that were beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they were pretty much <laughs> a disaster. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you're really connecting these two elements and saying, you know, that if you're violating your God-given mandate role as a woman, mm -hmm. and and I don't think you're saying that women are lesser lesser of the species. Absolutely I don't think not. That's what you're saying at all. Very um, worthy, actually. And, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, frankly, as a man, I would. <laughs> <laughs> oftentimes, I feel like I'm the lesser of the species. But okay. Um, but besides that, uh, there's an aspect here that says, you know, I am marring. Mm -hmm. Both in from an internal perspective, that what I was created to do. In other words, I wouldn't. I'm trying to think of a real live example of something that we have done to God's creation that has has destroyed its function and and actually made it ugly. Mm -hmm. um, as a result, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm sure they're out there. Um, but when a when a woman doesn't operate within the realm that God has created her to be. And that's where she'll find greatest satisfaction, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, then that beauty that is sought for on the outside is just a facade. It's just right. a painted picture. You can't picture. have beauty without truth. Right. Absolutely. You can't. And I think this is a great place for this subject in this chapter. I mean, it was intriguing to me to find that in there. But as I started thinking through it, I started to see the very real connection between the elements of role, function, and inward and outward beauty, how they connect. There's a relationship that is inseparable because of the way God made us. Right. And so I appreciated having, you know, read through and seen that 
there in that Thank section. You. And then ultimately, Again, I point to the, the beatific vision that we will all behold, which is Jesus what's Christ. What's that? Yeah, I was, I was going to say, that tell is us what. Our ultimate hope and expectation. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah, and mm-hmm. sooner than later. And he's beautifying I, us, his bride. So that's right. And there. I pray often that I pray often that the Lord would return. Um, I'm, I remind, I'm rem, oh, often reminded of a, a Puritan writer who would who would go to his window every morning and look out across the sky and pray. Maybe today, Lord. Maybe mm-hmm. today. And then he, before he go to bed at night, he'd pray the same thing. Maybe tonight, wow. Lord. Maybe tonight. And did this pretty much his whole life. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I often reflect on the fact that this could be the day the Lord returns. Um, it wouldn't break my heart any, frankly, mm-hmm. but that's a different subject for a different <laughs> day. Um, I don't want to talk about every chapter in the book, obviously. Uh, we don't have time to do that. You, you, you mm-hmm. mentioned um, you have a whole chapter in here about what about Sunday and, and mm-hmm. the values of value of the Lord's Day, and then the, then you right away follow up with what about the other six days in the book? <laughs> but I do, as I mentioned to you off air, I do want to get to um, what is, and I'm flipping through it here, not very well, um, flipping to the last chapter, mm-hmm. which is really, in some sense, you tie everything up very nicely. And yeah. the opening paragraph was really caught my eye as I was reading through it. Um, and here's what you say, and I just want to get your comments on this. Um, you said, when my thoughts for writing this book were barely... Little mental zygotes, interesting. (laughs) I read John Calvin's commentary on this passage of Scripture, and that's referencing Luke 14, 25-33. And it seemed to weave all my little contemplative pieces together. So in this final chapter, I hope to prove all those wrong who claim that doctrine and theology are impractical. Mm -hmm. How many times have I heard people say that? And and really, that seems to be... in a nutshell, exactly what you are trying to, that, that idea you're trying to defeat throughout this entire book. Yes, it is. And I kind of open the book with uh, quoting John seventeen three, where Jesus is praying, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Yep. And so we see that uh, knowing God, theology, that's what theology is, is an eternal matter. And, um, you were just talking about longing for the day of his return, but we won't talk about that right now. But the thing is, really looking to that and knowing who he is affects the way we decide things now. It affects what uh, we look for our joy in. It affects um, the, our perspective on everyday little matters. And so yes. that's really what I'm putting throughout the book. And in, in the last chapter, Expensive Grace, um, I just really talk about how you know so many people profess to have unity in Christ, but then they become very disillusioned when their lives don't turn out the way that they thought it would. And so, well, yeah, yeah, you you say that here on page two hundred and thirty. It, it's it's well, it's very well written and um, it, it's pointed, and I appreciate pointed. Um, Thank you. Probably more than well, I'm pointed and. I don't know if people appreciate it very often, but anyway, um, but you say disciple making has gained popularity in the church as believers are trying to hash out how God's truth should guide their lives. Mm-hmm. Yet in many of our gung-ho attempts to be disciples and make disciples, we find ourselves walking with a spiritual limp. 
interesting. Mm-hmm. Why? What is that spiritual limp then? I mean, if people are really pressing, they 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 want to do this thing. They're 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 making these outward professions. They're they're striving in this way. What's causing the limp? Well, I think part of it is this wrong expectation of um, the plan God has for your life. A lot mm. of times we believe that okay, now that I'm a Christian. Um, you know, to kind of take Joel Olstein's uh, book, now I can have my yes. best life now. <laughs> and God is going to bless everything that I do, and I'm going to have a wonderful marriage and a healthy life, and I'm going to make good decisions, and everything's going to be wonderful. You and, mean to say that it's it's possible for <laughs> a professing Christian, a person who actually knows the Lord, to have difficulties? <laughs> Um, I, I'm saying that actually we are going to have difficulties, and uh, that scripture, Luke 14, 25 right. through 33, um, tells us about the cost of discipleship, and it's expensive, <laughs> but grace is expensive. Very. Yeah, you go on to say, Christ has a strong warning for those of us who claim to be his disciples. He cautions that whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Yes. Um there's certain passages of scripture that for me personally, when I read them, I, I sometimes quiver. Mm-hmm. Um, I read them and I'm, I'm forced to reflect deeply on my own life, my own interaction with the Lord, my own relationship with him, my own lack of submission to him in many areas. Um, and I read that kind of verse and I think, oh, but then there's the other side of that that says, but you know what? I really desire to do exactly what that verse says. Yeah. It's, I don't read that verse and go, oh, who cares? Right. Um, and there, so there's hope in the in the, the quote unquote despair. I mean, it's not real despair, but there's hope in the the struggle. doubting. There's mm-hmm. hope in the struggle. Um, the fact that you that do comes. struggle <laughs> is affirming right. that you know the Holy Spirit is working in you. And then you go and you quote Jeremiah Burroughs, which I think is wonderful, um, mm. from his book, The Evil of Evils. Yeah, great book. But you really, I, I think, in this chapter, you really are trying to tie tie together the different topics and subjects that you talked about, but drive really home to the real core issue, whether you're a man or a woman, mm-hmm. is that this is a heart issue at the end of the day. Yes. And and so why, why deal with that? I mean, it, the world deals with everything on an external basis. I mean, what you do, what, you know, if I'm nice to my neighbor, that makes, means I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. If I don't rob the bank tomorrow, I'm a good person. If I don't steal from Walmart, I'm a good person. If I'm not nasty to my mom or I'm not mean to my husband, I'm a good person. I'm a good wife. Well, isn't that all true? Well, actually, Romans 3 tells us that no one is good, not one. And um, God is the only good. He is good. And anytime we look to goodness anywhere else, especially within our own selves, that is evil. So um, I really point to the heart issue because that is the only way we are truly changed is um, in the gospel message, we learn that we truly are miserable sinners in desperate need for good and that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and accredited that on behalf of his people and took on the curse for our sin. And that is where our hope is. He is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. He died and rose again and is interceding on behalf of his bride for our sanctification now. And um, that is our hope. And so when we keep looking to ourselves to just be better Christians, 
we do end up in despair. And uh, we have a God that we can come to and in repentance and in confidence and joy and love, knowing that he is working within us through his word. And so that's what I'm trying to use in the book is um, applying his word to, you know, the normal everyday kids fighting toothpaste in the sink, you know, <laughs> driving them around or, you know, having trouble at work, feeling like nobody cares. <laughs> All these normal everyday issues, um, how we can find our meaning in them, how we can be encouraged in them by the gospel. And I'm trying to foster a, a group setting, you know, in your yep. local church where you can really share with one another your successes and your failures in, in living this out. Yeah. Earlier, earlier in the discussion, you, you mentioned how you, you, you hope the book um, would be used in, in a, in a group type Bible study, you know, small group setting. Mm -hmm. And, um, at the end of every chapter, just for the listener's sake, there, there's a whole series of questions that are called that the author has has, has titled journaling questions. Mm -hmm. uh, I read that, and I like to journal, and so I think that those are things I should write down in the answers to these questions. That's how I look at that. But let me just give you a snapshot. This is the last chapter um, of some of the questions. They're again, they're pointed. <laughs> I mean, you you really can't read these questions and go, well, I, that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> or I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to deal with that. Well, well, you can choose not to deal with it, but you've read it. So now you mentally at least have to give it some credence. Um, but like, here's, here's a great question that is really aimed at, um, marriage in general, but what was your utopian vision of marriage and your future as a Christian? I mean, and we've all had that, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, we've all looked forward at our marriage, at what was going to be like and realized, boy, that was, we were pretty naive mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, Here's here's another very pointed question, and which really speaks to, to what you just said. How does a theology of the cross completely contradict the so-called American spirituality of our culture? And you mentioned you live in an area in West Virginia that is somewhat Christianized. I mean, that for, yeah. that's my word. Um, <laughs> I, I had that same. We had the same problem here in Greenville. Okay. Um, we're 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 in the Bible Belt, and, mm -hmm. and and so we get a lot of these very Christian type behaviors on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, but when you actually start talking with people, you realize they have never really been penetrated with the gospel. Right. They have it. They have the words, the language. Mm -hmm. But they. But there's a certain aspect that's missing. Um, it, from within that heart matter that you were talking about before. Those are just a sample of some of the questions. I mean, they, these are in every chapter. Um, very pointed, thought-provoking type questions that make you think about things. Um, yeah, that's just and, as a housewife. <laughs> yeah, and they're supposed to be the questions. Then, if you were to meet as a group, and there's 12 chapters, so it's designed mm -hmm. to maybe be a year-long study once a month. Um, is just to use these questions to lead the group discussion, and the more you share, the you know the deeper you guys can go in your group. Yep. And I've we really been so encouraged by the ones that I've been leading. It's been such a blessing, and it's pretty neat to be the author and to see how. Um, the book is affecting different people and how the way I envisioned it to be used as a tool like that. It, um, it's such a honor to be a part of the groups. Right. Now, what kind of uh, response have you got um, from the book as a whole, um, you know, across the spectrum? Have, you know, what uh, good, bad, ugly, 
Um, it's funny because, you know, this is my first book and I tried to put on some really thick skin when it first came out and, mm-hmm. you know, my stomach hurt. I'm like, <laughs> what are people going to say? But, um, right. I have been so encouraged. Um, it's really wonderful to get emails and notes from people that I don't even know who, um, are encouraged by my book. Some people sharing their story, uh, getting notes from people doing the group and telling me how it's going, having some phone conversations. I have a blog, um, housewifetheologian.com. So a lot of my, yes, I've been, been there. Yeah, a lot of my readers in from pre- the blog. <laughs> thank you. Um, a lot of my readers from the blog, um, have gotten the book and, um, have started groups and, it's just mm. wonderful. And, and even, you know, I've gotten, I know I got my first two star review on Amazon and I was like two stars and I click on it. And it was a woman who said, you know, I just couldn't handle the fact that she's from the complementarian view and that she says that you know, the, the submission word. And, uh, after, you know, I really agree that theology affects our life and I wanted to get into the book, but I just put the book down after chapter one. And well, you know, it's funny you say that and, and it, your first two star review it makes me, it, it, it caused me to reflect on one of your chapters. <laughs> Which one? About idolatry. Yes, exactly. How, as an author, you can start, you can sort Defining of. Defining yourself say, by what people say. That's so true. That's right. But you know yeah. what? I appreciated the fact that this woman, I wish she would have read the rest, you know, and I wish she wouldn't just give a review without reading the whole thing. But at the same time, I appreciated, you know what? She's listening to what I'm saying. She's disagreeing, but she's interacting with me right now. And. Um, she read the, the scripture and the explanation I gave in that first chapter, and that's that's in her now. <laughs> that's true. I mean, you, you, she certainly can't hide from that reality. I mean, I often tell people that you learn more from the negative responses anyway. Yeah. Um, so, as somebody who who goes in, I preach do pulpit supply from time to time for various churches, and mm-hmm. you know, people are usually very kind. Um, thank you for that sermon. I really appreciated this. It's very general, um, but I don't learn anything from that. Not to say that I'm not appreciative of the nice comments, because I am, mm-hmm. but I don't learn anything from that. Yeah, um, you know, I'm just a dumb seminary student <laughs> who's just learning his way through the, this process of preaching. And it, but when someone sits down with me and has a has you know interacts with me on a more on a deeper level about the sermon and says, "I really didn't understand what you meant here. I really didn't appreciate that comment," or you know, I learn more from those those as it were negative statements mm-hmm. um, about how I did not communicate with them or did not communicate to them for whatever reason. Yeah, it's or sharpening. I learned. Yes, exactly. And, and, and not to say that this person on Amazon is writing this review to, you know, to help you. Uh, it was probably more the other way, but um, maybe. Um, but, you know, <laughs> right. you know, it's always safe to sit behind a keyboard and write whatever you like and who's going to do anything about it. Um, anyway, but uh, so I, I was going to ask you about negative responses, but um, I understand that you had a discussion with Carl Truman. On this book, mm-hmm. did, I, did I understand that I correctly? Did. Yes. And um, so, um, it, yeah, I'm sure his interview with it was very different from the guys are <laughs> bringing. And, um, I'm not, and that's fine. But uh, but it's good to it's good to hear the, the the positive response. Now, do you have any other plans in the works for the future? I do, um, actually. Well, interestingly, after. Carl has a podcast now with an Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals called The Mortification mm-hmm. of Spin. And yep. um, after the Great interview, choice. him and Todd asked me to, to be a frequent co-host on the podcast. So that's oh, been great. a lot of fun. Yeah, we've been recording a lot of new podcasts together. And um, But I've also been working on another book for, with PNR. 
And I just turned in my final manuscript and it's called Theological Fitness. And this book is actually not just for women, it's for men and women. And my key verse and the subtitle is called Holding Fast to Our Confession of Hope. And I'm really using the verse Hebrews 10, 23. um, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And the book is about perseverance in the ordinary life. Um, Mm. I taught a year long women's Bible study through the book of Hebrews or the sermon letter, I should say to the Hebrews. And um, that when I got to that verse, I just realized, you know, that is kind of the exhortation that he gives after this long theological meat that he's giving them. And um, theological fitness is the word, the term I give to kind of evaluate our aptitude in God's word and how important that is in um, perseverance. And so holding fast to the confession of our hope, you know, if we're to persevere by holding fast to the confession of our hope, we need to know what that is. So I use yes. uh, fitness analogies, uh, physical fitness analogies to talk about theological fitness as uh, scripture does. <laughs> and having the background with the martial arts father and the secret service and a mother who owned a gym and a brother who teaches mixed martial arts. I have a lot of good stories to add in there as well. It's a pretty fun book. Yeah. I thought maybe the book was going to be about Greenville seminary. Cause that's also our, the, like, I don't want to say theme for some of the, you know, well, terrible, our hope, I noticed I connected with, yes. Today, and yeah. Well, that's where the, that's where the podcast name came from. He, Hebrews ten twenty three, And, um, that's when you, the seminary, well, then you got to read material that. Has, <laughs> Yep. So, you know, it works out. It's a perfect segue. It works perfectly um, for the program. But it's exciting to hear uh, about this new book coming out and um, the different types of responses that you've received. And they all sound very positive. Um, Obviously, as you know, as an author, you're going to get your share of hate mail, as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you just take the good with the bad and uh, move from there. I get them, too, uh, doing this thing. I get emails sometimes that – people don't like what I say or they didn't like that comment. Okay. Well, you know, can't please everybody all the time and I don't try, um, in that sense. Um, but, uh, how can the listeners get the book? We've mentioned PNR a hundred times. So obviously we can get it from, from the the PNR website. Um, I imagine Amazon's carrying it. You mentioned Amazon reviews. So Amazon is probably everywhere. Um, but I will have for the listeners benefit, I will have a link on the website to different sources so you can compare prices if you really want to do that and um and it'll make it easier for them to get the book and don't forget first person email me gets a free copy so it's really not uh it's possible to get a free one (laughs) all you gotta do is send me an email yeah and uh uh, wtsbooks.com westminster theological seminary they sell it for a good price and a lot of local christian bookstores are stocking it as well great well, it's uh, and Christian book. It is, yeah, it, it, like I said, it's a very helpful book, and I and and, and I said earlier in the program, it, it's not just for women. It's not just for housewives. I mean, <laughs> I really think men really ought to read it if they really want to understand some of the things that are going on with their wives in these areas. Um, if anything, you, you read it as a man, as a husband, so you can help your wife because that's what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Spiritually safeguarding your wife. And what better way to do it than to have the solid theological foundations from a woman's perspective so that you can interact with it that way. Um, I tend to talk over my wife's head about things theologically, <laughs> and that's not helpful. 
Mm-hmm. She looks at me with that that deer in the headlights look like I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about, um, and I don't bring it down to her level. And this book, I, what I really appreciate most about it, um, well, most, I, what I really appreciated about it is it's not a theological textbook. Mm-mm. And it doesn't read that way. And it's not, a, that's not meant to be negative. It's meant to be that it's engaging, it's warm, you feel as though you're learning as you're going. Um, you're not having to get a dictionary out every time a word is used and look it up because you don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> it's very simple to read in that way. So, um, again, I would encourage the listeners to get this. It's not expensive either. I think I'm trying to see the back of the book. They don't have the price on it. Well, these things I have think changed. The full price is like twelve ninety nine, but usually it's sold yeah. for less than that. Right. So, there you go. Um, you probably spend that much at the coffee house all month. So <laughs> you got an opportunity to buy the book there. Amy, it's been great talking with you. Um, Thank you. It's been so a pleasure. Things, yeah, there's so many things we could talk about in this area. And I, I know, as I said to you earlier off air, it's it's kind of that unmined area um, in in evangelicalism and Christianity where you know, house, housewives, stay-at-home moms, but women in general, um, they're, they're somewhat neglected in the theological realm for some reason I haven't quite figured out. Um, everything seems to be written more about practical type stuff and sort of creating that divorce that goes between theology and practical Christian living. Mm-hmm. And I think what your book really does well is it puts those two together where they belong. Mm-hmm. They do. And and marries them up very, very nicely. Dealing with women issues, issues that women tend to wrestle with, maybe more so than men, but I don't know. I, as I read through it, um, I could forget the woman part. I'm, you know, I struggle <laughs> with some of these things too. So um, I, I think that's from that perspective, it's very, very well done. Thank you. Yes, and again, it's always been a pleasure. So hang on the line just for a minute while I wrap up some small little piecemeal things. As okay. those who've who have been listening to this program. We've been talking with uh, Amy Bird. She is a stay-at-home mom. She is a wife, mother, uh, three children, who has written a book, first book, um, Housewife Theologian, uh, How the Gospel Interrupts the Ordinary. And again, I would really commend uh, this book. Buy it for yourself. Buy two. (laughs) Buy one for yourself as a husband and buy one for your wife. Read it together. Go through the questions together. Talk about it together. You might learn something about your wife. You never know. You know, I, don't be chicken. Idea. Don't be chicken, men. I know we don't do the whole touchy feely thing, but you know what? You might, you might learn something um, that you didn't know before. So uh, take that advice anyway. Consider where it comes from. I don't know. No expert in this this, in this subject anyhow. But uh, you can get the book at PNR as well as other uh, outlets, Amazon, WTS Books. I'll have links on the website for you to grab. What's coming up on the podcast? As I mentioned, I almost never know, um, but I think this time I that I'll make an exception in this case. Uh, next week we'll be talking with um, who will be talking with Lane Keister. He is a avid blogger at the Green Baggins blog. Uh, those who follow Reformed theology and discussions of that nature are very well acquainted with his blog. We'll be talking with him about the most recent. PCA SJC decision regarding Peter Lightheart. Um, that should be a very interesting, if not altogether fiery discussion, um, because as many who follow what's going on in the PCA know, uh, this has been a very disheartening, for us conservative people anyway, um, disheartening circumstance. And so we'll be talking with Lane about that subject. Uh, he should know he was an expert witness for the prosecution. 
So um, we'll be getting his take on the subject and where we go from here as a denomination, especially those of us who are concerned with confessional uh, um, con- confessional fatality and, and matters of that nature. So stay tuned to that program. It should be very, very good. And as usual, I do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. Thank you.